Hello, friends. How are you? Oh, I forgot to turn it on. Is it on? Now it's on. Yeah, okay. Well, I'm glad I checked how you're doing. <laughs> nice to be with you. Mm. Nice to journey together. We're all practicing together. We're all practitioners first and foremost. And I know that is definitely true for me. I'm definitely a practitioner first. And actually, teaching for me is a way to keep my feet to the fire and continue to practice intensely as I am present with you. So tonight, as we journey together through practice, we journey together through the uh, another link of the liberative dependent arising that we started a few nights ago. And just a few words about, uh, about liberative dependent arising, LDA, the three-letter acronym. I like TLAs, three-letter acronyms. LDA is one of them. So as we journey through the 12 links of the LDA, I was actually thinking today, reflecting about uh, the link that we're going to talk about tonight, specifically tranquility. But I was really taken by the elegance, by the whole elegance of the structure of the the 12 links um, and how they relate to the 12 links of the other, um, uh, of of the better known, the dependent arising, uh, dependent origination, uh, the links that start with uh, ignorance and end in Jaramarana, old age and death, which is really the samsaric chain. So that's the 12 links of dependent arising that we are more familiar with is the samsaric chain. And just to remind you what, of what they are, ignorance, avijja, mental formation, sankara, so one leads to another to another, the next link is consciousness, vijnana, leading to mind and matter, namarupa, leading to the six sense bases, salyatana, salyatana, leading to contact, pasa, leading to feeling, vedana, leading to craving, tanha, that's where we usually work with and it's easiest to break the chain, leading to clinging, upadana, leading to becoming, bhava, leading to birth, jati, and leading to jara marana, soka, parideva, aging and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. There's a lot there in that last one. And thus arises the entire mass of suffering, goes the teaching. So what is beautiful about the liberative dependent arising actually in, in, um, in the Upanisa Sutta, and uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi speaks to this really beautifully, and, and he has a way with words. So I was just relishing his words, and I want to share them with you. So he says, <clears throat> tucked away in Samyutta Nikaya among the connected sayings on causality 
is a short, formalized text entitled the Upanisa Sutta, the Discourse on Supporting Conditions. Okay. Though at first glance hardly conspicuous among the many interesting suttas in this collection, okay, so it doesn't seem that interesting. There are many more interesting stuff happening there. This little discourse turns out upon repeated examination to be of tremendous doctrinal importance. Ah, got your attention? So this little discourse of tremendous doctrinal importance, he goes on by saying, its great significance derives from the striking juxtaposition it makes of the two applications of dependent arising, paticca samuppada. The principle of conditionality which lies at the heart of the Buddhist doctrine. The first application is the usual one in the sutta, setting forth the, cause, the causal consequence responsible for origination of samsaric suffering, which is the one I read for you. Those are the links of the dependent origination. The samsaric wheel just keeps going on and on and on and on. Then, so that is the samsaric suffering, samsaric wheel. Now, now apart from a slight change in its identical uh, uh, apart from a slight change, it is identical with the 12-factored formulation occurring through the Pali canon. The change, now here comes the change, which um, um, Gail talked about eloquently. The, so the change is really the substitution of suffering in the liberative dependent origination for aging and death, jara marana, you know, all the sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, all of that. So that's the only substitution. Okay, and then see what happens. So with that substitution, so that substitution as the last member of the series, that, that suffering becomes the lead for the second application of dependent arising. This application, occurring only sporadically in the Pali canon, allows the same principle of conditionality to structure the path leading to deliverance from suffering. It begins with faith, emerging out of suffering, with which the first series ended, and continues through the, restorative, the re retrospective knowledge of liberation, which confirms the destruction of the binding defilements. So if, if I were to draw a drawing of these two, basically the first the first dependent origination is like a wheel. It kind of goes like this. But then, so, so, and the way that it goes in this sutta, it's actually like poetry. It's, I'm going to read the part of, parts of it for you. So part of the sutta goes like this. Just as practitioners, when rain descends heavily upon mountaintop, the water flows down along with the slope and fills the clefts gullies and creeks. These being filled fill, filled up to the pools, these being filled up to the ponds, fill up the ponds. These being filled, fill up the streams. These being filled, fill up the rivers. And the rivers being filled, fill up the great ocean. In the same way, practitioners, ignorance is the supporting condition for comma formations. Kama formations are the supporting condition for consciousness. 
consciousness is the supporting condition for mentality materiality. Mentality materiality is the supporting condition for the sixfold sense base. The sixfold sense base is a supporting condition for contact, and it continues like that until it gets to, okay, now we expect at this point birth to be the condition for jara marana, for death, but now the substitution comes in. So, so far, the circle is kind of going, 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 but oh, instead of closing the circle, then it goes up to liberation. So this is how it continues now. So instead of closing the circle and now going back to how we know dependent origination uh, to to go, instead, this is what happens. Um, Existence for the supporting condition for birth, birth is the supporting condition for suffering. Okay, this is the switch here. Faith is a supporting condition um, and, and then um, suffering is a supporting condition for faith. Faith is a supporting condition for joy. Joy is a supporting condition for rapture. Rapture is a supporting condition for tranquility. Tranquility is a supporting condition for happiness, and so on and so forth, through liberation. So I wanted to share that structure with you because I think it's, to me it's very inspiring to 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 really appreciate that the same teaching of causes and conditions can be cause and condition for staying in samsara, for staying in suffering, and the same teaching of causality can be a, con- can be, um, a condition for liberation. And the difference really is that switch. And what is that switch? The switch is how we deal with suffering as Gil beautifully actually guided us through this reflection at the beginning of his talk, that there are two paths through suffering. The path of samsaric suffering is, according to the suttas, when when the suffering is perceived as sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, despair, the whole mass of suffering arises. But when suffering is... is, is um, is worked with you 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 work with it you you work with suffering not with with the beating of the chest and the second arrows but actually with wisdom ah then it can become a source for faith and and etc etc so it's all there it's all right there and the rest of it flows out So after Gill's talk on suffering, Ruth beautifully talked about faith and how that arises and the important role that faith plays really in our practice. And then Philip treated all of us to a discourse on gladdening the mind and on rapture and pity and joy. So that brings us to tonight, to tranquility. As you might have already recognized, some of the factors, uh, some of the links might have sounded similar to you from the talk last week on the seven factors of awakening. Yes, I see nodding heads. Yes, there are some factors similar. Um, In fact, rapture, pity, 
tranquility, pasadi, as well as concentration, which will be talked about later, samadhi. These are three uh, factors of awakening, three, three beautiful qualities of the heart and mind that I touched on in a talk last week this time, very briefly on each of them. And um, we're having the chance to expand on three of these. So tonight we'll be talking about um, pasadi, tranquility. So pasadi, pasadi. For those of you who like um, the Pali words P-A-S-S-A-D-D-H-I, it's a Pali, the Pali noun that has been translated as calmness, tranquility, repose, and serenity. And the associated verb in Pali is pasambati, to calm down, to be quiet. So, peace, tranquility, calmness, serenity. It's interesting because this is one thing that Buddhists and Buddhism is known for, right? Images um, and, uh, and statues of the Buddha, um, which are quite popular even pe- with people who are not Buddhists and, and don't practice. Um, they're very popular as garden statues, but they're, they're kind of, they, they uh, symbolize sense of peace, serenity, um, the Buddha is sitting with sense of integrity, with a contented smile, just um, beaming calm and tranquility. And of course, it, it doesn't hurt, it helps that he's sitting on a lotus flower on a still pond, you know, just tranquil, tranquil image upon tranquil image. So, speaking of calm and tranquility, right now, if you look into your experience, you're probably a lot more calm and tranquil than you realize. It is not uncommon for retreatants, for yogis, and and when I'm a yogi myself, it's kind of hard for me to realize how calm or quiet my mind has become. So right now, if I suggested that we all go to a wild party together, that would probably totally spin you out. <laughs> because the, the mind is in such a calm and tranquil place. So I brought that silly example for you to just kind of check in. Like, oh yeah, there is calm. There is tranquility. It is present. That factor is present for you right now. It's interesting. Um, some years ago, um, I left a long retreat, um, and I thought, oh, I've done so many retreats, you know, I'm fine, I'm not in any particular state, so I arrived home, there was nothing in the fridge, of course, I had been gone for a long time, and uh, I decided to go grocery shopping, I needed food to eat, no problem, I'll just go, I'll pick up a few things, and for those of you who know Trader Joe's, Choices are pretty limited, right? They're, 
Safeway would have gazillion uh, jams, different brands, different this, but Trader Joe's, they're just one brand. It's kind of straightforward. Okay, so I thought I'm not in much danger. It's just Trader Joe's. Um, so I go to buy some jam, and um, I was almost in tears. <laughs> I was so overwhelmed. Should I get strawberry, mixed berry, apricot? I don't know. Look at the calories. Look at the contents. Look at, oh, I don't know. Like, whoa, okay, okay, all right. I guess the mind is in a different space. I just, I don't know. I think I just took strawberry and walked out. But it's so interesting. We don't realize, we often don't realize how calm, tranquil, and, um, yeah, what it, uh, how altered our state of consciousness is. <clears throat> and you have been con- cultivating tranquility day by day, day by day in this environment. And even if you did not do any meditation, if you just sat in the hall with your eyes closed and walked, slowly walked back and forth, walked in the hills, um, you would feel a lot more calm than the day you entered. Actually, I'm going to ask you something. Okay. Remember the day you came on retreat. See if you can remember that. You might have flown here. You probably had a gazillion things to wrap up because you were going to be gone for one or two months. Phone calls to make, emails to send, all that. And you arrived here. Can you remember that day? Yeah? Okay, I see some nodding heads. Some people can remember that day. Okay. <laughs> it's such a long time ago, a lifetime ago. Okay. Can you kind of tap into, you may not want to, but can you kind of tap into that state of mind, what it was? Don't worry, you won't lose your tranquility. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I feel deep sighs. I hear deep sighs. Oh, yeah. Okay. Now, now that you have a sense of that, a barometer of the difference in the change, come back and feel your body right now sitting. Right here, right now. Feel yourself sitting. Feel your mind. Does it feel different? Do you now feel you're more tranquil, more calm? Anyone, I would be curious, anyone who thinks they're no calmer than the day they entered. No show of hands, yeah. So this little silly exercise is just a way to point, really to point and see, because as I said, like my, my adventure at Trader Joe's, didn't quite realize what the state of mind was as well. And still, it's, it's not completely possible to, to be um, uh, very objective, but, but we can point to it to really appreciate what has been cultivated for each and every one of you over the past weeks.
So tranquility, calm. What's calm got to do with it? With due respect to Tina Turner. What's calm got to do with this? Why calm? Why tranquility? Why is it important? Why is it coming up? So, different reasons. One is that, as many of you have experienced really calm, stability, this tranquility, it supports stabilization of the mind. It supports the mind getting unified, the mind getting concentrated, samadhi. It's a supporting factor for samadhi. And samadhi, concentration, unification of the mind, provides the stability that is needed for seeing things as they are, for insight to arise, for the deconstruction to arise, for deconstruction of reality as we think it is, but it's not really so. So tranquility supports concentration, and concentration supports wisdom arising, insight arising. There's also, so this is one reason. Also, the second, and I think just as important reason why calm and tranquility are important, is when liberating insights do arise, they're not always a walk in the park. They actually, quite often, they can challenge the way we assumed life and reality is. And that can be destabilizing if there isn't tranquility and calm and concentration to hold that, to allow that stability of mind to be there. So, so, equin- so um, the <clears throat> so this factor, <clears throat> this stillness, the stillness of the mind, really supports being able to be still and not um, and not lose ground, not really lose ground. So, as we think about calm and about stillness, there's also what seems to be their opposite. Seemingly the opposite of stillness is movement, and the opposite of calm is agitation. But only seemingly so. What I want to share with you is that actually there is not so much a dichotomy between movement and stillness and agitation and calm. And I think the lack of dichotomy between movement movement and stillness was also brought in by Philip um, and uh, and Ruth also. So I like to bring it in and work with it in the uh, context of, of, uh, of uh, tranquility tonight. So <clears throat> with tranquility, with calm, there is the idea of that there is stillness. But there can be movement within the stillness and stillness within the movement. They're not at odds. 
So there can be stillness when you are walking, when you're doing your walking meditation. The mind can be quite still when the body is in motion. The body can have a lot of motion. In fact, you can even be, at this point, you can even go for a fast walk, which I recommended to some. Um, Even a fast walk, you can have calm and tranquility. The body is moving, but there can be stillness in the mind. And there can be sitting with stillness. You can be sitting in the hall with stillness, wide and vast, and you can be holding spaciously a lot of inner movement. A lot of inner movement can be happening. A lot of seeing, a lot of seeing movement, things arising and passing away. Um, Or holding a lot of um, thoughts or emotions that are coming. If you don't get agitated by them, they could be held. They could be held in a really, really wide container, spacious container of calm and stillness of the body. There could be movement outside and stillness inside. So now we're going to explore this external, internal. So you could be in the dining hall, and there could be lots of sounds of people taking food, lots of um, sounds of um, utensils against plates. It's like cacophony of sound. Actually, it's interesting. In some previous meditation retreats that I've sat, one thing that I really enjoyed is sitting in the dining hall and listening to all the sound, all the commotion around me. It's, it can sound like a symphony. It can sound so interesting. It just, all this music around, the sound, soundscape. Um, and the mind can be very still in the middle of all of that. Stillness and movement. Movement and stillness. One is not necessarily an enemy, one not a friend. They're, they can be together. So not to have aversion to, to one or the other. So not a duality to hold, to reject one for the other. <clears throat> this actually showed up for me years ago um, in a different way also. Um, I was sitting a retreat at uh, at Hidden Villa, and um, there were rustic cabins there, and, and quite, it, it, it um, yeah, quite quite nice. There were trails around there that you could walk around. Um, it, the Hidden Villa is not as cushy as Spirit Rock. There are bunk beds, and you know, pretty um, simple, but the grounds are as lovely as the grounds here for taking walks. So I remember one day I was going for a walk and there were a lot of trees. And in one moment as I was walking, I I came to standing and, um, and it seemed like the whole forest there, the whole forest, all the trees, it seemed like they're vibrating with movement, with energy. Everything was pulsating with life. I had never seen that before. I had never felt that before. Everything was alive. Every blade of uh, grass, every leaf. 
There was movement everywhere and there was complete stillness. And the two were exactly aligned. There was stillness in the movement, movement in the stillness. They were not separate. So no dichotomy. There can be complete movement, pulsation with life, this life energy that's around us, that is us, completely twirling everywhere in this hall even right now. It's actually quite alive, this hall, with a lot of energy, and it's quite still. Rumi says, as translated by Coleman Barks, I was happy enough to stay still, inside the pearl, inside the shell. But the hurricane of experience lashed me out of hiding and made me a wave moving into shore, saying loudly the ocean's secret. As I went and then spent there, I slept like fog against the cliff, another stillness. So what we imagine stillness to be, we might be pulled out of one kind of stillness by the hurricane of experience, as, as he says, and still move into another form of stillness. Also, when we talk about <clears throat> tranquility, it seems like it's the opposite of agitation. In fact, it is an antidote of, to agitation, to restlessness and worry, but not in the way that we often think. It's not like, oh yeah, I'm going to get rid of my agitation so that I can be tranquil. It's not like that, as many of you know already. You don't try to get rid of something in order to get something else. In this case, you allow it a lot of space. You hold the restlessness. You hold the agitation, this movement within a wide, wide pasture of the mind. You give it space. You hold it with a lot of stillness, a lot of spaciousness, so they can exist together at the same time. The same way that if your mind was a wild horse and was running around, you wouldn't try to contain it in a small pen. That wouldn't work. The horse would, would go mad. So instead, you give it a wide, wide pasture and you hold it with a lot of space within the stillness. So in the same way, calm can become a container for holding, for being with a lot. Not just on retreat, not just in, in retreat practice and on sitting and walking practice, but also in daily life. I know that for me, I was actually reflecting today, that I've become a lot calmer as I've been practicing intensely for many years. I've become calmer. There's no question about it. It's actually quite interesting. And some time ago, I was in a situation where I was having a conversation, a discussion with someone who's not a practitioner. And uh, in this conversation, this discussion, at some point they became very activated and visibly angry, and they were quite upset and said, you are so calm. So um, it was quite interesting to see that actually being calm. Um, so that was the best compliment I ever received in an argument, that you're so calm. 
but you can see for yourself that that this practice changes you. You can actually hold um, a lot with calmness, which which actually allows the arising of uh, of wisdom. Because if the mind is agitated, if the mind is being tossed about, it's ha- it's harder for wisdom to get a hold. But if there is calm, then wisdom might have a chance um, to actually have a foothold in a situation when there is activation and difficult emotions arising. So how to practice? How to practice? I'd like to share some pointers for actually practicing with tranquility. First and foremost is notice when it's here. When I, at the beginning of the talk, I try to point out how much more tranquility and calm is present for you right now compared to the day you arrive. So notice, notice that it's present. Sometimes with all our preoccupations on a retreat, with this and that and this hindrance and that and this plan and this and that memory, sometimes it can be hard to notice the presence of calm and tranquility. So notice that there is more peace present than you actually realize and you give yourself credit for. And if you only remember one thing from this talk, maybe it would be that. Just to recognize peace and tranquility that is here. Because just simply that, that noticing, that realizing, it helps it grow. When you advert the mind towards it, towards what is, it helps it grow. It makes it flourish. So you can observe tranquility and calm internally when it's present in you, and you can also tune into it externally. So, for example, when you're sitting in in the hall um, and there is agitation, one thing you can do is to actually listen to listen to the silence, to the stillness in the hall, or open your eyes and notice the stillness, everyone sitting. So externally notice, be aware of the stillness, of the tranquility, of the calm. Externally, you can notice it in the hills, in the grass, in the turkeys, in the trees. Also, that's another way to help it grow. Another thing that actually often arises on its own is um, slowing down the movements. This might have already happened for you naturally, that your movements have gotten slower. it doesn't feel right to walk fast sometimes. So, and that is the tranquility of the body and the mind. So naturally, the body can slow down sometimes. In order to cultivate it, one thing that you can do is to slow down your movements. Slow down your movements. Walk more slowly. Open the door a little more slowly. Go to the bathroom a little more slowly. Brush your teeth a little more slowly. Just slow down. 
it's like fake it till you make it. So you kind of slow down the movements and then the mind catches up. Another way, another um, directive, another um, practice that actually is in the suttas for cultivating tranquility is through practice of mindfulness of breathing. It both shows up in the Satipatthana Sutta, which we talked about earlier in this retreat, um, in the first Satipatthana, uh, in the body. And it also shows up in the Anapanasati um, Sutta, Mindfulness of Breathing Sutta. So that instruction is... So, so the the um, actually, I'll I'll share the the um, flow of the instructions. That might be helpful instead of just giving you that one. So, in the Satipatthana Sutta, breathing in long, they know I breathe in long. Breathing out long, they know I breathe out long. Breathing in short, they know I breathe in short. Breathing out short, they know I breathe out short. They train thus. So the first part is about knowing, uh, being aware of the shortness or long, uh, longness of the breath. And then they train thus. I breathe in experiencing the whole body. They train thus. I shall breathe out experiencing the whole body. So that instruction breathing in and out, experiencing the whole body, the physical body, it can also be construed as feeling the whole body of the breath as it goes in and out. Okay, and now we come to the third instruction. This, that was the build-up. So the third instruction, <clears throat> they train thus, I shall breathe in calming the bodily formations. They train thus, I shall breathe out calming the bodily formations. But this is a very specific and important instruction. So breathing in, calming the bodily formations. Now there are two ways to construe that. The bodily formations of the body, so you're calming the, the body as you breathe in and out. Calming the body will then calm the breath. Another way that it's construed is that you're calm, calming the, the body of the breath itself calming the body of the breath itself, which then will lead to the body getting calm. So the two instructions, the, the, true, the two way of construing this instruction are a little different, but actually they lead to the same thing because when the body is calm, the breath will be calm. When the breath is calm, the body will be calm. So it doesn't make that much of a difference, but that's one way to calm, to, to develop tranquility and calming. So another way is to, um, to advert the mind and conjure up the experience of tranquility and calm that, that the mind knows, the body knows, but may not be available in this moment. So with this, I have an invitation to you. And the invitation is that we all close our eyes for a moment Take a deep breath, settle into your body. 
as you settle into your body, feeling your breath, now I invite you to bring to mind the image of of a lake, perhaps, sitting by a lake, something that's familiar to you, an image from nature that's familiar to you. Perhaps you had an experience at some point when you were sitting by a calm, placid lake, or maybe it's a feeling of calm and tranquility that overcame you when you were hiking, you're in the hills. Or maybe by the ocean, or something else, anything else. An image from nature that brings about, brings up the feeling of calm, tranquility. And breathe with that image, hold that image. Let that image be held spaciously for a moment or two. You can open your eyes if you wish. So, we all know what feeling of tranquility and calm is like. We, we, it's a natural experience of daily life that we've had. And sometimes it can be helpful to bring, to bring that in, to bring nature in by inviting the mind to access it in ways that if it, it, it may not be accessible in a given moment. So that is also a practice that is available to you. And that is actually very similar to, to, um, to what happened for the Buddha, naturally. So many of you may know the story, but when he was sitting under the Bodhi tree, just before his enlightenment. And he was trying so hard and trying this and trying that and and efforting. And all of a sudden, the image that came up for him was an image, it was an image and a felt sense, as I invited you to have an image and a felt sense. For him, the image and the felt sense were of when he was a child and he was sitting under the rose apple tree. His family were in the fields and he was under a tree, under a shade, nice and cool. And there was so much joy and happiness, calm, tranquility, bliss, all of that. So when he was sitting under the Bodhi tree, he remembered that, ah, and that felt sense gave him direction, this is the way, this is the way. So it's not cheating, it's not 
It's, it's what's available to you as human beings. It's what's available to all of us as a human being. This, this resourcing, this, the way that our mind can find calm and peace and bliss. And it, it happens, it, m- many times our minds happen by happenstance, happen to these states of tranquility, peace, perhaps in nature, perhaps at other times. And ah, the memory of that, the felt sense of that is a resource. And you can avail yourself of that resource. It's within you. It's what's available for you. It's, a, it's available to you towards the path of liberation. You can have the, you can bring this calm lake inside. You can feel it inside. And for my own practice, that's many times that's how tranquility has felt. It's like a placid, calm lake. The mind is calm and placid. It's a lake. That's the feeling. That's the image that comes up. It's actually interesting that uh, a friend of mine, Cliff Saron, who's a uh, neuroscientist at UC Davis, shared this study with me. Um, This is from Psychological Science in 2008, and the title of it is The Cognitive Benefits of Interacting with Nature. Basically, making a long story short, um, if you take two groups um, of subjects, and, or multiple groups of subjects, and if um, one group goes and takes a wa- walk in nature, and another one takes a walk in the city, and then they both come back, and you give them an attention task. And by the way, meditation is some kind of an attention task, right? It's an attention. You're, you're training your attention to to be mindful, to be aware, to be present. So they call it attention task. We, we'll call it mindfulness. Um, statistically differently, com- very differently, the people who had the walk in nature, they did a lot better on the att- attention task than the people who had um, taken the walk in the city. And not only that, but those who had looked through uh, photographs of nature not, and hadn't taken a walk. So basically they had conjured up images of nature, um, also um, did better. And similarly, when we close our eyes, when we bring nature inside, it's the same thing. But when our eyes are open and we're, act, we're in the world and interacting, it's like being in the city. So, Wendell Berry, the piece of wild things, he says, when despair for the world grows in me and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief, 
I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day blind stars waiting with their light. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world, and I am free. So the last part of what I wanted to share with you tonight for tranquility and supportive conditions for tranquility is, um, is what's called, uh, actually it's what's found in the commentarial surveys, actually in the uh, Visuddhimagga, the supportive conditions for developing the awakening factors. So I wanted to share them with you. I think it's a pretty good list. The first one is good food. I think we have that supportive condition, don't you think? Good food, isn't that interesting? So 2,000 years ago, this is the list that, that uh, has been p- passed down, handed down, good food. So appreciating our good fortune that we are being taken care of so generously and kindly um, by all the cooks here that, who pour their love into the food. So good food is said that it's a uh, condition for developing this factor of, awake, of awakening in this factor, in, in this uh, chain. The other one is agreeable weather. Check. <laughs> We've got that one. The third one is comfortable posture. So that one, as we have invited you to be as comfortable as you possibly can and still have an integrity to your posture, is supportive for developing tranquility. So you don't have to sit in the chair. You don't have to sit um, on the cushion. Just see what is best for your body to have a comfortable posture. The fourth is balanced behavior. I think you all have pretty balanced behavior here. Calm, walking, sitting. The fifth one is avoiding restless people and associating with calm people. (laughs) I think uh, you have lucked out in that one too, in this community. And the last one is inclining the mind accordingly. Inclining the mind accordingly, which is what I had been talking about earlier, recognizing the presence, um, conjuring up, etc. So I'd like to uh, end with a poem by Judith Hill. And the name of the poem is Wage Peace. And you can let this wash over you. Wage peace with your breath. Breathe in firemen and rubble. Breathe out whole buildings and flocks of red-winged blackbirds. Breathe in terrorists and breathe out sleeping children and freshly mown fields. Breathe in confusion and breathe out maple trees. Breathe in the fallen and breathe out lifelong friendships intact. 
Wage peace with your listening. Hearing sirens, pray loud. Remember your tools, flower seeds, clothespins, clean rivers. Make soup. Play music. Learn the word for thank you in three languages. Learn to knit and make a hat. Think of chaos as dancing raspberries. I love that line. Think of chaos as dancing raspberries. Think of that in your head when next time there's a lot of thoughts. Dancing raspberries. Imagine grief as the outbreath of beauty or the gesture of fish. Imagine grief as the outbreath of beauty or the gesture of fish. Swim for the other side. Wage peace. Never has the world seemed so fresh and precious. Have a cup of tea and rejoice. Act as if armistice has already arrived. Celebrate today. Let's just sit together for a few moments. Being peace, may we all wage peace internally and externally. Thank you for your kind attention. So we have about half an hour for walking and then there is a sitting afterwards. Um, and if you do have the energy, this is getting to the rich part of the retreat. If you have the energy, if you can stay up and practice further into the night with peace, with tranquility, I invite you to uh, to try it out. Maybe I'll see you at the last sit. I'll be there. Maybe you'll come. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.